0: Everything happened fast for years. A couple months on the street, a couple months in jail, a couple in the psych or the halfway and back on the street again. This job, that job, always only for a couple months or weeks before something happened. Sober for a few months and then not. A couple months on this pill or that one, Effexor, Risperdal, Lamictal, Seroquel, Latuda, Lexapro, Trazodone. I couldn't even tell you what I was taking when I was taking Uh it.
1: You're listening to PEN America's Works of Justice podcast. I am Malcolm Tariq, Senior Manager of Editorial Projects for Prison and Justice Writing, which for over 40 years has amplified the voices of thousands of writers who are creating while incarcerated. Works of Justice spotlights key figures, writers, and artists who are reshaping the conversation on mass incarceration, justice, and abolition in the United States. In this episode, Postgraduate Fellow Emma Stamen speaks with author David Sanchez, an inaugural 2018-2019 Writing for Justice Fellow at PEN America. His debut novel, All Day is a Long Time, is a semi-autobiographical story on addiction, incarceration, and recovery.
2: Please be advised that this episode contains mentions of suicide. To avoid this content, please skip minutes 9 through 12. So again thank you so much for doing this we're really excited about uh your book coming out soon Uh, everyone who's read it so far we've really loved it and um, i think it's a great book to focus on for our first edition like i said because you have already a connection with us so thank you
0: thank you i'm glad you liked it i was kind of nervous
2: Your writing is is really beautifully vulnerable and open, and it feels like you're letting the reader inside the mind of the narrator directly. It also covers some really intense topics in a really fearless, matter-of-fact way that feels like you're leaving nothing out. And given that your book is semi-autobiographical and that you are discussing issues of addiction, incarceration, mental health, homelessness, and the pressure that these experiences are putting on relationships with family my question is how did it feel to be this vulnerable in your writing and to share that experience with an
0: audience you mentioned family the thing i was most concerned about was really my my parents reading the book i mean our relationship was front-loaded with a lot of trouble and turmoil or whatever and nowadays I have a really good relationship with them and I was kind of scared that this would sully it or just be awkward. Um, and so that was in the back of my head the whole time and it, it was hard for me to, <clears throat> to cope with in terms of other people reading the vulnerability of it and, and all that stuff. I didn't really care. All my friends knew about this kind of stuff. A lot of my friends gone through similar things and, and I just, and kind of in the mode of being very open about a lot of that stuff but that idea of my parents and, and my brother reading it really too he's got a copy and he hasn't read it yet he just knows it's gonna fuck him up like he's gonna feel very emotional And he's like i just have to set aside a weekend to like feel it out because i mean because the thing is like a lot of it's like you said autobiographical there are elements of stuff and and it wasn't just me going through that you know what I mean like my brother loves me a lot and he was kind of riding that ride too he's a little hesitant I don't really like to read first person books and I felt like I had a kind of a chip on my shoulder inferiority thing going where because the book isn't like this grand third person sweeping kind of narrative which I felt like maybe I was a little less of a good writer you know what I mean like uh if I'm leaning too much on my personal experience I was like I'm kind of topping out or whatever but I did eventually get to a place where where I was able to like see the benefits of of writing that way everything was time soup in my head dumplings of memory and noodly thoughts I woke up in a crack motel at three in the afternoon thinking it was three in the morning I looked for my keys for 30 minutes, thinking I had to go to the warehouse by the airport to bag newspapers and run my route, only to remember that I didn't have a car, and my newspaper job didn't start for another three years.
2: So you mentioned that your brother hasn't read the book yet. Did you tell your family that you were writing it while you were working on it, or how did you bring that up with them?
0: I was in graduate school, and I was in an MFA program, and I was working on it, and Things started to happen where like I got the, the Penn fellowship and, you know, I wanted to share that news with them. And then it's kind of like, well, what are you writing about? I was pretty dodgy about it, doing some verbal jujitsu to kind of avoid telling them too much. And and I was still in the process of figuring out exactly how the book was going to look and what I wanted to do with it. But eventually, yeah, I had to have a conversation with them and... Kind of brace them and all that stuff. And so I tried to, you know, I dedicated the book to my parents and I tried to, I did try to voice just how much they mean to me and how much I love them.
2: Yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely think that comes across in the writing. And that's also interesting how you mentioned how you felt about writing a first person narrative versus a third person narrative, because that's one of the things that I thought was really compelling and, and worked really well about the book was that it was through the narrative perspective. And I'm curious about, your approach to combining your real life experiences and fiction in the novel and how you negotiate the semi of a semi-autobiographical work in your novel.
0: I was thinking about the day that I started writing it. I was, I had an assignment due for an MFA class and I didn't know what I was going to write about. I mean, I'm walking around with like all this really intense kind of personal baggage that I felt like was probably artistically useful in some way, but I had never tried to open it or any of that and never really tried to explore it in my writing. And I was sitting there like chain smoking, waiting for something to come to me. And, you know, the cigarettes started making my mouth feel really dry. And then I thought about something that I had learned about meth that it makes your mouth dry. That's how it rots out your teeth. And so, like, I wrote that down. I started writing some other stuff down. Little, like, drug-related facts and then little micro-stories that I was recalling. Um, And that's how, like, I started. And then I did well on the assignment. I started getting positive feedback, and I was like, well, maybe I should push this a little further and see where it goes. As I got deeper into the book, negotiating, like you were saying, that semi place. I knew I had stuff that I wanted to talk about that. I knew I wanted if I had a novel, that I wanted it to be about certain things like the formation of self and like, and just certain kind of broader concepts that I wanted to touch on. When I was in undergrad, I took a lot of like philosophy classes that kind of ignited my brain in this really cool way I felt and I always felt like addiction was a very fertile place to talk about free will and and the self I mean, the struggle of addiction being that like you want something and you don't want it at the same time, that seemed ripe for exploration to me. And I, I remember reading uh, an interview with Larry David when at some point and he was talking about curb your enthusiasm, how like Larry David in the show, is like a super exaggerated version of some of his characteristics or whatever. And so I kind of, I felt like that was the the David of my book was an exaggerated version of some of my uh, like solipsistic tendencies or some of my, I don't know, trains of thought or whatever. And it was, it got to a point where I I just enjoyed like letting all that stuff run and, and, seeing what happened and all that stuff. And, and, and there's a lot of stuff that happened in my life that I didn't put in the book. There's stuff that happens in the book, but didn't happen in my life. And like, I remember was really struck when I was 19, I tried to kill myself and that was like a very, I mean, that was a huge thing in my life. And, and, um, my character doesn't do that, you know? And so, but I remember like making a, an informed decision of like, you know what, the reader's been through enough at this point, like it's kind of already gloomy, like I don't need to, to pile this on in a way. And like, I just felt like the book was better with withholding that. So yeah, there were a lot of decisions sort of like that that I made to justify ultimately what I wanted, how, how I wanted the book to end and how I wanted, what feelings I wanted to maybe come through. Even the books I read would twist and braid into one another. I would start a new chapter of whatever Hemingway and in that half of a blank page get mixed up, get confused, and brace myself for 80 pages of Milton, expecting verse, expecting marching feet, poetic contractions and confusion, and instead see those little sprints of sentences. Simplicity and Paris, Africa, Cuba, Spain, godless expatriation, modernity and all the hunting and the fishing, and the bullfighting, and the love not love. Key West, the only place of his I knew. And then I would forget again, and ready myself for a fight with Milton, with God and tangled meaning. No underlying iceberg truths, but God on the surface snarled in an iambic jungle.
2: That's really interesting that you bring up what you you felt you wanted to leave out about that um, moment, and not wanting to share that, because you know, there is a, still a scene in the book where you uh, discuss another person having a suicide attempt and kind of your reaction to that. Do you feel like you included that scene to kind of tangentially bring up this this issue without having to to yourself in it?
0: Yeah, I think that scene and that scene, like, who <clears throat> does the afterwards, the David in the book does EMDR and like, has kind of a trippy transference of self into the guy that tried to kill himself, you know, and the book needed to address that kind of stuff. And there's a part later in the book where David really contemplates it, you know? And yeah, I mean, I, I knew I wanted to address it, but I also, I didn't maybe want to include it just as like a straight up scene or whatever.
2: Yeah. That's really interesting how you, cause I thought that was really effective also. And that's another one of the topics that I wanted to bring up is the EMDR therapy and how that's an example, kind of the ways in which you are manipulating time and space in the novel. Um, And a lot of those times go back and forth between incorporating these really incredibly vivid descriptions of nature that feel almost like an escape from the story. And then there are other moments where I feel like you're the way you talk about time is providing more of a pointed commentary. Uh, for example, your scenes in the jail where you're really exposing the endlessness and the monotony of time in carceral spaces. So uh, could you eliminate your process for creating these scenes where the conception of time and space changes so easily from one thing to another? And uh, tell us a little bit more about how you decide which moments to dive uh, more deeply into.
0: Yeah. Just like as a person, I've always been someone who like ever since I was a little kid was really into anything that could kind of make me forget about time. Like I was really into Legos when I was a kid and I would just like zone in and do them and the day would disappear. And they had the same thing with reading. And honestly, you know, part of the like, same thing with drugs and like anything that could kind of make me just escape from linear time or whatever made me feel really good. And then, and then jail sucks because you're doing time and you are bored as fuck. And like, you really have to search. I mean, I read books that I probably couldn't get through today when I was in there because just because there was nothing better to do, you know, and like, just like really bad, like romance novels and stuff. But like, I was just, going for anything that could make me forget about the minutes falling off the clock and David in the book has that aspect washing dishes in the psych facility and and all this stuff like of trying to find that escape from time but then there's also the aspect of incarceration and addiction that it's like stuff tends to repeat itself. The character in the book goes through a bunch of false starts and just ends up doing the same exact thing over again and, and all this. In that way, you know, he looks for, and I look for, escapes from those little cycles. And, and so I guess nature seems like an obvious place to do this. Like books seemed like an obvious way to do this to me. I knew these these certain things like that the character David kept kind of at the bottom of his heart that like, guarded them and and tried to preserve them through all this bullshit that he's going through and i think reading and and thinking and nature are like very close very down there for him that he just ways in which he can kind of forget about just how shitty the outside stuff is you know in writing the book this is the first book i ever wrote it's the first thing i really ever tried to like i put a lot into this and, and worked really hard on it and it felt like I was just utilizing some kind of potential that felt really good and and part of that is like in the written word in books you can mess with time in my mind maybe easier than in a visual medium or something so there was like an aspect of play with it especially with that scene with the EMDR where I was like I like had an idea and I followed it and I was like this is kind of cool like and this is seems uniquely book-ish or something. And then my roommate would come into our tiny halfway house apartment and bitch about his ex-wife, or the chow carts would get rolled in, or the public library was closing for the night, or the compulsions would come up through my stomach and force me out into the world. In the story of my life that replays constantly in some faraway lobe in my brain, narration begins and ends and starts over.
2: So I, I want to go back a bit to how you talk about selfhood in the book and identity, because one of the things that I was really struck by in these scenes about the jail were the effects of this environment on identity and selfhood. And uh, just for context for the listeners, there are a couple of passages that I want to highlight when you talk about specifically being processed in jail. So you write, I started to notice all the faces in the room, how close they were to mine, how scared of them I was, their heads nearing mine every second, tilting in and getting closer and closer, stifling my sense of self, making me even more discreet, hardening the outline of my being, but shrinking it every second. So what would you like your audience to understand about the relationship between incarceration and identity?
0: Yeah, um, there's something social and antisocial about jail and about carceral spaces where you're with a lot of other people and they're in the same boat as you. And yet you're like this discreet being, you know, and I felt the same way in a, in a lot of ways about addiction, just being out in the world. And there's a combativeness to it and a loneliness where it's like, it's just me and my personal desires. And then the world, the place in which I have to like get things from or whatever. And it's a, uh, it's a relationship that is just self-centered and and damaging in a lot of ways to other aspects of yourself. Yeah, that relationship between the social and the antisocial like contradiction there. And I mean, lifelong friendships are born in jails and prisons and institutions like every day. And that to me is just like a testament to the strength of our inherent love for one another and it's just like a beautiful thing. But it basically everything in there is is designed to not let that happen. You know, it's really just like the fact that it happens is really a beautiful thing to me because everything is dehumanizing stuff. But also in a more pessimistic way, it's like it's very humanizing to just be like a subject of a, of a system and to be this discreet little cog in it or whatever. And to just kind of have your own little... Mental world, something about like the way in which everything comes down on you. I feel like your insides push back and build that outline of yourself and like harden it a little bit just to say, like, I, I'm still here or whatever. This idea, I think, of selfhood, it evolves later in the book. This idea of like of selfhood, subjectivity, the soul, something metaphysical about being a person and how that can actually pit you against the world, like I was saying, and cause you to view the world as something to take from, as opposed to just being a part of. Um, and so there was some, there's some interplay there. There's honestly a, a connection that I'm not sure I realized as I was writing it between the formation of self within institutions and then, and selflessness of trying to cultivate a selflessness in, the, in your way of being in the world, you know.
2: I love that you brought up kind of the similarities between uh, incarceration and addiction and those effects on the self. Because I remember in one of your early emails, you said, I'm not sure how much, how related my book is to incarceration. Or you said, it's only tangentially related. And I I was like, okay. And like, after reading it, I was like, no, I think this is so
1: relevant
2: because of all the ways in which, you know, it doesn't have to just be, you know, set in the prison or the jail, or even talk about this for the whole time, but just the way that you're, drawing these connections between oh here's the effects of incarceration in the system and like how in- intertwined it is with you know addiction and mental health and just all of these ways in which those are all incredibly interrelated within the different institutions that you go through like education system and you know different rehabilitations and and really drawing this kind of whole picture on what all of that has to do with the self and kind of how that shapes a person coming of age. Yeah. So I think that's incredibly well done.
0: I I thought about a lot like, yeah, just the vertical power relations, like this character is constantly getting like nuggets handed down to him as a term and a concept like addiction was just those early years of my adulthood. That was just the word of, you know, everywhere I went, that was just like on, on the signs and the brochures and the walls and the mouths of all the therapists and everything. And then in in my own head, just like just coloring the way I looked at myself and the world and everything. It was hard to bust out of, but I I feel like I busted out of it. And I feel like honestly writing the book helped me. It gets longer every time. More details are added and they change. They get brighter or dimmer and sometimes are just wholly fabricated. It replays in jumbled scenes. In that unused percentage of the brain. It sucks up the moments as soon as they are passed and incorporates them in its own logic. The story I tell myself constantly about who I am and what I've done, where I'm headed.
2: I'm gonna talk about the title a bit, All Day is a long time, because I think that really connects well to this continued theme of the setting sun. And your kind of fascination with it in the novel. So did you always know that this was going to be the title of your work or were there others that you considered and and how did you- I
0: am like, I'm really bad at titling and <laughs> I didn't have a title for a long time. And I mean, I knew it had to do with the sun. I knew that I knew like just the sun was really important. There was a moment, I had like this epiphany moment where in the book I'm talking about, where I'm talking about Descartes and I've already written about all this stuff about the sun and talking about his idea between the mind and the body and, and all this stuff. And, and his, like, from the 1700s, he thought it all happens in the pineal gland. And like, I looked up to see what the pineal gland actually does. And it's like where the circadian rhythm is based out of. And it tells you where the sun is. It's kind of like where you get your internal clock. And, uh, that was just like, oh, whoa, like, I feel like I'm onto something here. Like I busted into some area that seemed uh was like completely novel to me and so i knew it had to be sun related i mean everything for david the character comes back to nature and comes back to these pastoral settings of the water and trees and sunsets and all that stuff
2: so the book is coming out really soon it's coming out in january so I guess one of my final questions for you is what are you hoping that it does in the world?
0: I think this book can appeal to people that don't really read that much. I think that it can speak to people that, that maybe are not plugged into a literary scene or something. And, and I mean, in my heart, I believe in books. I believe that they're kind of a special thing. I just would like to have people that don't read that much to read it and Maybe they get something out of the experience of reading it. And when I was in the Penn Fellowship, I did a reading at a facility in New York. It was like a waiting area where people were, I think, about to go back to prison or maybe they were doing this to avoid. It was some kind of treatment to avoid going to prison, something. I did a reading there and it, I mean, um, just felt amazing to like connect with these guys and and have them hear my book. And I just felt like they picked up on what I was saying. It felt good to be saying what I was like reading what I was reading and just like, I just felt like these are my people. And, and, and this book could mean something to someone like that. And from that story, a memory is not what it seems, a dead recollection from a static cabinet in the brain. It is an echo from the unending narration in the other room. And the narrator is a creation of the main character, not the other way around. If you listen If you unlock a door to a quiet room and put your ear to the wall, you can hear him running his mouth. This episode of Works of
1: Justice was produced by postgraduate fellow Emma Stamen and mastered by Sarah Weck. Music used throughout the episode was created by B.L. Sherrell and Fury Young of Die Jim Crow Records the nation's first nonprofit record label for formerly and currently incarcerated artists. Members of PEN America's prison and justice writing team include.
2: Mary Concepcion, prison writing program coordinator. Anjali M. Salem, program
0: assistant. Gia Kagan-Trenchard, senior manager, free write project.
1: Kate Meisner, director of prison and justice writing.
0: Robert Pollock,
1: prison writing program manager. Malcolm Tariq. Senior Manager, Editorial Projects.
2: Sophia Ramirez, Postgraduate Fellow. Emma Stamen, Postgraduate Fellow.
1: You can subscribe to and hear previous episodes of Works of Justice on any podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. To learn more about Penn America's prison and justice writing, please visit penn.org slash works of justice. That's pen.org slash works of justice.